You're listening to a North Valley Community Church podcast. For more information and resources, visit us online at northvalleychurch.org. Well, good morning. Good to be with you guys this morning. My name is Ryan. I serve as a lead pastor here at the church. We're in a series called Love and Marriage. Uh, glad that you guys are with us. If you're new for the first time, welcome to North Valley. Uh, we are about, this is, we got four more Sundays, including this Sunday, here in this theater, and then we'll be moving over to our campus. So yeah, let's celebrate that. That'll be great. Hey, I want to tell you a story. This morning, we're going to be talking about the art of resolving conflict. And uh, when you get into a fight with uh, the one you love, you, you can walk away first in the beginning saying to your spouse or to significant other, um... I'm really disappointed in you. Uh, But if you get with the Lord for just a moment of time, oftentimes you can find out you feel convicted of the things that you've done wrong, and then you begin to see how you're disappointed in yourself. What you need to hear this morning is that God never gives up on you. God loves you. He sees all your inconsistencies, your failures, and your flaws, and says, I'm committed to you. I love you with a great love that you've never experienced. And then if you walk with him over time, he'll show you your inconsistencies and say, I'll help you walk stronger, be more wise, follow with me. Uh, This morning, I want to tell you a story. When I was uh, right in the very beginning of my uh, marriage, I met my wife. I mean, our our dating, our courtship uh, engagement season, met and married within nine months. I barely knew the girl. I fell in love with her, and she is fantastic, but I tell you what, that first year was marked by a lot of conflict. Um, I remember one time we were uh, at our house. We had this little bitty house right next to the college I attended, University of Arkansas in Little Rock, and uh, we got into a fight and a disagreement, and uh, I remember she she is... um, She's a stuffer, and I'm a spewer. Like, she'll take her stuff, and she'll, she'll stuff it. And then I, I will just let it all out. And then 10 minutes later, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, and I'm ready to work it out. You know, I'm the guy who says, hey, uh, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Let's resolve this conflict most of the time, all the time. Um, so I'm, I'm embarrassed to tell you the story a little bit, but I'm going to tell you anyway uh, because it's real life. Keep it real. So here, here it was. So Leslie and I get into this disagreement. She gets upset, and she had a regular routine of when you get into trouble, you just go and you withdraw, and you go isolate. So we get into this fight over who knows what it was. It could have been toothpaste, you know. And she goes into the room. She shuts the door. And I worked so hard on this house to, to repair it and restore it. Like, I painted every square inch of the house I redid the, the floor, the linoleum floor in the kitchen there. I redid everything to make it a beautiful, beautiful place for my new bride. And when we got into this fight, she runs into the door, and she locks the door, and she uh, says, I'm not, gonna, I'm not ready to talk for a long time. So I go to the door, and I begin to knock. I uh, open up, Leslie, we need to talk. And she says, go away. And I say, no, come on, open this door right now. We need to resolve our conflict. Now, I was being pushy, and she needed a little space, and I didn't know that about her early on. I mean, what, that's what happens when you meet and get married in nine months. And so I, I, I'm sitting in this little tiny hallway. It's a really tight hallway, about as, uh, just about, 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 about literally. I mean, it's just a really tight, tight hallway. 
the house was built back in like 1945. It was the first neighborhood in America that received air conditioners. <laughs> that was our proud factoid for the neighborhood. Uh, so we're sitting there and, and we're in this disagreement. And then she uh, says to me, leave me alone. And it really hurt me. And I, and I said, no, Leslie, I, 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 did, I started asserting my authority way too fast in the wrong way. I said, I'm the man of this house. Open that door. She didn't want to open that door. You ever been there before? And so I'm sitting there and I said, I find I'm like thinking like the big bad wolf. I will huff and puff and blow this house down if you don't open the door. So I say, I'm going to kick the door if you don't open it. And she's like, go away. I wouldn't go away. So I'm thinking I'm going to kick this door. So I get mad and I think I'm going to kick the door. And then I think, no, but I'm so mad. I just want to shake my legs. So I go to kick the door and I go, and I get my foot stuck in the drywall behind me. And I'm like, whoa, whoa. And she says, what's wrong? I'm like, I got my foot stuck in the wall. And uh, literally the hallway had a hole in the, in the hallway right by the door for months. And my friends would come over and I would say, they'd say, what happened there, man? I thought you fixed up your house. I was like, oh, I don't want to talk about it. And it was known in our house as the hall of shame. For a long time, that, that hole in that drywall, my anger got out of control for a moment. And I look back on stories like that, and I think, how many households never learn how to resolve their conflict? And their house doesn't become a place of peace. It becomes a war zone. Um, what we're going to do this morning is realize that we all have conflict. Look what the Bible says. It says, James says this. He goes, what's causing quarrels and fights among you? What are you fighting over? He asks a question. There's a few things that I think most of us fight over pretty often is money. We fight over parenting styles. We fight over in-laws. We fight over sexual intimacy and what that looks like. But we fight. And James goes on to say it's not just those issues, it's a deeper issue. He says, Ask the questions, don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? Isn't that where it really begins? We don't fight against flesh and blood, but we fight against principalities of darkness. There's an evilness that is at work against the marriage. There's an evilness that's against every Christian. And you walk in this holy opposition into the world. You're called to live countercultural, live countercultural. There's a resistance upon your life, and you need to know that you cannot make it on your own. You need a higher power. That higher power is Jesus Christ. He offers a new life and a new power and a new hope. And there's this war going on within us, and I'm asking you again today, lay down your weapons. Lay down your weapons. Here are some common weapons for conflict. Withdrawal, blame, invalidation, negativity, and escalation withdrawal, blame, invalidation, negativity, and escalation. I said last week, if you have three or more of these at work in your marriage, you are set up for destruction. I want to give you hope. That research and that statement is not based on the supernatural work of Jesus Christ in the life of a Christian. He can overcome anything. All of you need to have hope that if these are at work in your 
your conflict and your relationships where you withdraw, you withhold, you blame, you invalidate people, you're negative all the time, or you're escalating conflict. I was escalating in that moment. Open this door, open this door. She was withdrawing, and I was frustrated, and I didn't handle it correctly. So what does God's word have to tell us? Well, first of all, we need to realize that there's a battle going on within us. There's a war is what James says. Look at that. It says that there's a war within you. And like my good friend G.I. Joe said, knowing is half the battle. You need to know what you're up against. What's your weakness? Where are you struggling? This morning, what I want to do is highlight seven habits of highly effective couples that resolve conflict. I'm going to use a couple different verses, and then I'm going to uh, walk through chapter 6 of Song of Songs. And we're going to look at that. But the first thing that... uh, couples do that resolve their conflict is they understand that they attack the problem, not the person. They attack the problem, not the person. I heard recently uh, of a story of a a family uh, that went out of town and they dropped off their kids and in-laws took their kids and maybe they didn't communicate expectations very clearly. And then uh, when they come back, they find out that, you know, uh, like my household, uh, your, your, your grandparents or the grandparents, the in-laws maybe didn't run the rules of the household like you would. And then there's a problem. And instead of attacking the person, which many people do is they get mad at the individuals, maybe that was in charge of the kids, but they realize it's not that maybe the problem was communication. Maybe the problem was expectations. And what I'm going to encourage you to do is practice what God's word says. Uh, look at Romans 12, 17. It says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what you do. Let's say that together. But give thought to what you do. What is honorable in the sight of all? If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That's a charge that uh, the apostle Paul gave to the church in Rome that was in conflict, uh, that we are to seek peace with all people is is it depends on us. There's a reality, I love that it says that, if possible, so far as it depends on you, you do everything in your power, everything that you can to make peace. That's to reconcile. But you've got to focus on the problem, not the person. The problem is, is there's this evil tension within every single one of us that we fight principalities of darkness. And we need the help of our good Lord Jesus, God's word. We need the Holy Spirit to rely upon to overcome these trials and these temptations and these challenges that can dissolve and destroy our most precious relationships. Number two, we need to seek wise counsel as needed. This was very normal, uh, in, even in Solomon and his bride that we're going to see, that we have seen, is that they seek wise counsel. Um, I heard recently that the largest organizations in the world are, ma- are, are led by uh, decision makers of four to nine people. You don't need a ton of wise people in your life to help you navigate through life, but you need a few. Look what the Bible says. Listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. And then it continues, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. As a pattern of life, I want to encourage you that you always have wise counsel in your life. I can look back at my life at 18 years old. I became a Christian and I began to surround myself with godly men uh, that were wiser and older than me. And in every arena of life that you face, I would argue you need some wise counsel. If it's in your work, if it's in your marriage, if it's in finances, the reality is, is that God made a 
great number of people with different skills, uniquenesses, and strengths, and it takes an army or it takes a village, you've heard it say, to raise a child. Well, it takes an army and a village just to navigate through marriage, to navigate through life. God's operated and designed it where we're walking in counsel together. This morning, as we're looking at Song of Songs chapter 6, I want to rehearse to you kind of the conflict that they had. Solomon is in Jerusalem, and he has pursued his bride to spend an evening, a romantic evening together. She was tired. She didn't want to engage in a special date night that Solomon was hoping would happen, and they get into a fight. And so we pick up the story of Solomon and his bride this morning, looking at uh, how they're going to resolve this conflict. The first thing we see in chapter 6, verse 1, Solomon's bride seeks counsel uh, from her friends. And her friends say this, uh, Where has your beloved gone, most beautiful of women? Which way did your beloved turn that we may look for him with you? They want to help. They're asking her, Hey, where do you think Solomon has gone? They got into a fight and Solomon left. He exited the house. Um, some commentators would say is that he shouldn't have done that. He should have stayed there and worked it out. Maybe Solomon had a temper and he needed to take a time out. But whatever the reason was, uh, we find Solomon's bride seeks wise counsel when they hit conflict. And last week I told you it's so important to have pre-approved friends for wise counsel. You don't need to just go to anybody for wise counsel when you're having conflict. You need to go to godly wise counsel when you can't work it out. These friends help her think through where he might be. And she responds, she comes to realize. Verse two, she says, my beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to, the, to browse in the gardens and to gather his lilies. You see, Solomon was a builder. In Ecclesiastes 2, 4 through 6, he writes this, I undertook great projects. He was an incredible mastermind of a builder. He says, I built houses. He built all sorts of kind of houses. We see in, in the Song of Songs, he has a palace and a house back in Jerusalem. He also has a cottage or a cabin up in Lebanon. Uh, he built houses for himself. He planted vineyards. Very likely their love took off because he planted vineyards. She ran a family vineyard back in Lebanon. And Solomon has taken time out in the conflict to get away to his garden. He says, I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. Every single one of us need to practice this third habit that Solomon did is take a time out when needed. You need to take a time out. This morning, I, I went up to the top of this beautiful mountain right behind my house, and there's this big cross. And I really feel that God has set that there for me always to look up. I didn't put the cross up there on this mountain, up on the Sonoran foothills. Uh, somebody else did. But my house sits just right behind it. And that's a place where I go from time to time just to pause. Sometimes when I get into a disagreement with my spouse, I'll go up there. Sometimes when I need to just... Uh, clear my head and ask the Lord to uh, re revive my soul and my heart. I'll go up there and pray. One of the most important things you can do, it's okay when you get into a conflict, is to call for a timeout. This is a rule that we set up with between Leslie and I. Now, instead of me escalating and demanding that the door is open, she'll call for a timeout. She'll say, hey, can we get a timeout just for a moment? What we see with Solomon is that he took a timeout. He went to the place that he loved. He went to her garden. He went to a place of refreshing, a renewal. Very likely it was 
a great opportunity for him just to slow down, recalibrate, meditate on what the truths of God's are. Truth, truths of God is he prayed and asked God to make him the wisest person in the world. I wouldn't doubt it if Solomon spent a lot of time in the garden asking God, God, what's next? How do I navigate this? Take a time out. Here's why a lot of you guys struggle with anger or some of you ladies struggle with anger. Here's what God's Word says, James 1.20. Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Yeah, you might say, oh yeah, you can be angry, but in your anger do not sin, right? I've heard that before. Yes, you can be angry. Anger, anger is an emotion. But most oftentimes, if you let anger go untamed by the Spirit of God in your life, it's fuel to the fire and a war commences. And your escalation gets out of control, your blame, your thought patterns, and all of that. What the Bible says is that human anger just doesn't produce the righteousness that God desires as a general rule of thumb. It doesn't happen. There is a holy anger when you see evil happening or wrongdoing. There's a holy, righteous indignation. But in general, as you look at the conflict that you're in, there's times where maybe you just need to say, I'm calling for a time out. This morning, I'm asking you to lay your weapons down and create peace in your households. You need to think about a time out as the right time, a right emotion, a right method. To resolve conflict, you need to have uh, the right time. You need to think about that time out. It's really important because it, it can help you get with the Lord. The greatest thing I can do to you is just keep pointing you back to a relationship with Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. When people call me for counseling, oftentimes what I do is I do not give them answers. I point them to God's word. And I might tell a story about how God's used something in my life. My greatest leverage upon your life is directing you to spend time with the Lord and exhort you and encourage you in teaching and preaching in the word. You need to understand when the right time is. If you're at conflict with anybody, you need to ask when the right time is. Generally, it's not at night and it's not in private uh, if it's a real heated conflict. Oftentimes, the best time to have a conflict is when you also not only have the right time, but you have the right emotion. You're emotionally in the right place. Your emotions go up and down. And you need to be at the right place emotionally. You need to have the right method and know what to do, when to do it, how to do it. What we see in verse 3 is that she's ready to talk. She's got the, she understands the right timing. She understands the right emotion. And she understands that she is in just the right place overall. She understands it's the right method. She's going to go to him and meet him in the garden. She says, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. And he browses among the lilies. She's commenting about uh, Solomon at work in his garden. She's a country girl. He's a king of Jerusalem. And likely they've spent a lot of time together in this garden. Solomon speaks up first. She can't get a word out of her mouth. Solomon's already thought about her. And he says this, you are beautiful as Tirzah. My darling, as lovely as Jerusalem, as majestic as the troops with banners. Ladies, think about that. You've done a, a wrong against your husband, and you know that there's, 
there's a conflict, uh, reso- uh, resolving conflict ahead of you, and you go and you meet him, and instead of him pointing the finger at you and say, please apologize, he begins to comment about how beautiful and how wonderful you are. He doesn't just comment about her beauty. Tirzah was the northern capital of Israel for a time period. The word Tirzah literally means the one to be delighted in. And he's saying to her right off the bat, you're the one to be delighted in. In other words, he's disarming her immediately for any warfare and saying, I'm here, I want to create peace. The word Jerusalem is, first of all, it's the southern capital in the kingdom of Israel. It means literally a city of peace or unbrokenness. And so Solomon speaks up and he speaks first and he tells her, you're not only the one I delight in, you're the one that I find peace and there's an unbrokenness in between us. He's forgiven her. Number four, fourth thing that is important for couples to do, we see in the life of Solomon, we see in other godly couples is learn to ask and give forgiveness. Let's say that together. Learn to ask and give forgiveness. Let me tell you, ask you a question. How many... uh, in a given week, how many conflicts do you get into with your spouse? One? Two? In a given month, how many conflicts are you getting into? One, two, three, four, five, twenty? Let me ask you this question. Does the, do these phrases come to your, uh, are they in your household? These are phrases that you need to have in your own life and you need to understand. The Bible says this, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven, has God, God in Christ forgave you. You need to say things like, I was wrong, and you fill in the blank. You need to say things like, hey, I'm really sorry. Or you say something like, will you forgive me for, and then you fill in the blank. Or a word like this, I forgive you. You can't resolve conflict if those things don't happen. Conflict is when one person is offended or hurt and the other person doesn't know how to respond and they lie there. And then reconciliation comes when there's a confession, acknowledgement of the wrongdoing, and then the other person chooses to forgive. If you're withholding forgiveness, it's an incredibly dangerous thing upon your spiritual life, upon your emotional well-being, and on your marriage and every other relationship. Phrases like this need to just roll off your tongue. I was wrong. It's okay to be wrong. I've told you before that the more that you recognize your weaknesses, the greater opportunity for God's grace to work in and through you. The Bible says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the what? Humble. Humble yourself before the Lord that he may lift you up. Saying things like, I was wrong. See, when you take a time out, that's when you figure it out. When you take a time out, you got nothing to prove, no, nothing to lose. You're with the Lord. You say to him, God, where did I go wrong? He'll show you. And then you can meet your spouse or whoever and you say to them, hey, I was wrong for this. Or you say, hey, I want you to forgive me. Please, I'm sorry for this. Those kind of words are life-giving. That's opening the drawbridge of the castle of your heart for the high king of heaven to ride in and set up reign and rule over your life. That's godly. That creates a shalom over your household, a place of peace. Those kind of words got to ring out all the time. 
Instead, what we can do is we blame, 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 blame. Solomon reaffirms his love. Check this out, verse 5. He says, turn your eyes away from me. They overwhelm me. She's beautiful. He says, your hair is like a flock of goats. I'm like, what are you talking about, Solomon? He says, descending from Gilead, your teeth are like a flock of sheep coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. Not one of them is missing. They're white, and she's got a full set of teeth. She is not from Apache Junction. He says, your temples behind your veil are like halves of pomegranate. She's got rosy red cheeks. She's beautiful. These are the, this is the very same words that he used on his honeymoon night. In other words, what he's saying to her is, nothing's changed between you and me. It's the exact words that he said on his honeymoon night. In other words, she is a Jerusalem. She's a city of unbrokenness. She is a place of peace. And he uses those exact same words to reaffirm his love. Solomon says she's unique. He says 60 queens, there may be 80 concubines and virgins beyond number, but my dove, my perfect one, look what it says, my perfect one is unique, the only daughter of her mother, the favorite, the one who bore her. It was a common practice in this day and time for many kings to practice polygamy. Um, Solomon, in the book of Song of Songs, we see from the beginning to the end, he's in love with one, one lady. He loves her tremendously. It starts with her, it ends with her. Uh, it was a common practice partially because it was a, a, a way for political alliances for a king to take on many wives or uh, economic advancements for a kingdom. But Solomon here says this, you're unique. You're my dove, my perfect one, unique, the only daughter of her mother, the favorite, the one who bore her. He is reaffirming his love for her. Their friends respond. The young women saw and, and called her blessed. The queen and the concubines praised her. Who is the one who appears like the dawn, fair as the moon, bright as the sun, majestic as the stars in procession? They're saying she's beautiful. She's a guiding light. She shines in the midst of darkness. She's like the sun who rises and gives warmth into all that are around. Their relationship is vibrant. There is peace in the valley once again. They have restored their conflict. But Solomon does this beautifully. He reinforces his commitment to her. Fifth thing that we need to practice as couples as we're going to resolve conflict is reinforcing commitment. Never use words like, if you, you know, fine, maybe we should just end this thing or maybe we should get a divorce. Uh, I heard recently of my kids coming home from school. They uh, had several families in the, at their school. The, the families were getting a divorce and then uh, Leslie and I got into a, a tiff and uh, it was here recently, and immediately my son comes to me and says, does this mean you and mom are getting a divorce? I said, no, that's not what it means at all. Why? What does God's word say? What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. My encouragement to you is in every conflict that you face, you always say things like this, even when the battle is hot and it's, the war is waging. You say things like, we may have disagreements, you, you have wronged me, I know, and I have wronged you, I know, but I need you to know I love you, I will stand for, by you forever, 
and I have hope and faith we will get through this. Those are words of recommitment, of long-lasting commitment. The great reality is, is probably half this room has walked through a tragic divorce. For some of you, it could have been a day of deliverance. It was a very tumultuous, terrible marriage. The Bible says that for sexual immorality, that's the reason that you can get divorced and you could argue all sorts of other reasons. It's a message for another day. But by and large, here's the reality. God's at work in every one of us fallen, broken, uh, flawed people. But our call, God's word teaches us that we always, in the midst of conflict, we need to reinforce commitment. What therefore God is joined together, let no man separate. Jesus said that. Sixth thing we're going to see is that we need to focus on growth. She says this, I went down to the grove of nut trees to look at the new growth in the valley. Things are in bloom. She's, uh, I think she's using this as a metaphoric uh, description of her relationship with Solomon. That's happened uh, throughout the course of the book. And she says, to see that the vines have budded or the pomegranates were in bloom because this, she says, before I realized it, my desire set me among the royal chariots of my people. Do you know what happened to her? It was a his world, my world relationship. She's a country girl. He's a political leader, a king. Now she doesn't see this work that Solomon's got that has taken him away from her on business and on travel and on trips. She doesn't see that as that's his deal. These are his people. That's his kingdom. She sees it as this is my kingdom. These are my people. I am, have a royal responsibility she, her desires have changed, her action has changed, her attitude has changed, and she's focusing on growth of what God's doing in her heart. She sees them together. Her friends are excited, and the conflict is over and is resolved, and they say, come back, come back, O Shulamite. Come back, come back, that we may gaze on you. Shulamite is a feminine uh, form of the word Solomon in Hebrew. In other words, what they're saying is it would be like being silly when you see me and Leslie together. You say, oh, well, there is Ryan and Ryanetta. Or you say, uh, there is uh, John and Johnetta. It's, it's a feminine form. It's a little uh, uh, forced or pushed. But that's what is going on here. Often as well, uh, many commentators say it's also a reference to her hometown. Uh, scholars d uh, debate about that. Uh, but I find it very uh, amusing to see how they could use that kind of uh, name or nickname in the relationship. Their friends want to be back with her because she's a great friend. She had just left. She's, she's transitioned from being single to being married. And she still has a lot of carryover of friends. And these are good friends, godly friends that have counseled her, uh, pre-approved friends that Solomon affirms and acknowledges. And they want to uh, be with her. And it says that they may gaze on her. Now, this next verse is very interesting because uh, it's uh, debated as to the meaning of it. Uh, it says this, Solomon speaks up and says, Why would you gaze on the Shulamite as on the dance of Mahanin? The dance of Mahanin, uh, two things about it is, one, is, is understood as, in many translations of the Bible, it says uh, the battle or the dance between two armies. Um, 
And then others would take this verse to understand it in context of what's next week Pastor Randy's going to be talking about as a dance. It's a very provocative, private dance that uh, this uh, Shulamite would perform for Solomon in the context of a closed bedroom. Nonetheless, look at the text. Look what it says. It says, why would you gaze on the Shulamite as on the dance of Mahanin? Solomon is speaking up, and at least he's saying this. Um, for you to look upon her is a bit inappropriate. He's asking a question, why would you do this? Why would you do this? Um, I think it's important to understand that Solomon uh, is about rekindling romance, and so is she. We can say that, number seven, for sure. Uh, and based on chapter 7, which we'll get into next week, you will see uh, a very provocative behind-the-scenes uh, romance encounter next week between Solomon and his bride. Uh, rekindling the romance is important. Here's what the Bible says. It's all about love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. Love never fails. The Apostle Paul starts with love, telling you what it is. Love is patient and love is kind. And then he goes in and he tells you all the things that love is not. And then he closes and he says, it always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres, love never fails. I want to encourage you to revisit that passage for rekindling the romance, the love and the marriage that you have, uh, revisiting that passage as an anchor for your position on how you are romantic and how you are loving, be patient, be kind, always protect each other, always trust each other. And when you blow it, go to the Lord and say, Lord, I thank you that you protect me. I thank you that you have hope for me. I thank you that you persevere. I thank you, God, that your love never fails. Amen. The rewards of resolving conflict are this. You get a clear direction as to your relationship. You get a stronger connection. You experience greater intimacy and a greater level of just joy and fellowship with each other. And you get a deeper commitment. I want to close with a story by telling you the story of a, of between a father and a son. Um, the father and the son, this story has been told uh, many different times. And it kind of reminds me of my past with my dad. Uh, the father and the son get into a disagreement at the house. The son... Uh, literally gets into like a fist fight with his dad during his teenage years. And the dad takes him up to the house and tells his wife, he's leaving. He's got to get out of the house. If he can't obey my rules under my household, he's not welcome to stay. The young man gets in the car and drives off really, really far, gets on a train, catches a train and goes as far as he can. And then one day in his, uh, his anguish and uh, hurt, he decides he wants to go back home. So he picks up a phone and calls from a pay phone and he calls his mom and he says, mom, how are you doing? And she says, oh my God, and I'm so glad that you called. How are you? I haven't seen you for months. He says, I'm fine. I, I was wondering if by chance I could come home. And she said, well, I'd love for you to come home. I, I, know, I, I know that you and your, your father got into a big disagreement and he chimes in and says, yeah, how is dad? And she says, dad's not doing good ever since you and him had the big blow-up fight. 
uh, he and I haven't really talked as much. And he's just changed in so many different ways. And he said, Mom, what do I do? And she says, I want you to come home. And he says, how can I come home if I'm not welcomed by my own father? And she says, well, just come home and I promise we'll work it out. And he goes, no, Mom, I don't think I can do that. I, I don't know. I've already bought a train ticket, though. And, you know, uh, I was thinking, I, I want to come home. My car broke down and I'm going to catch the train and come home. And he said, look, the train's about to leave and I do want to come home, but I'm terrified because if Dad hasn't forgiven me, I can't come home. And he comes up with a quick idea and he says, hey, you know, at the bottom of our property, there's a big field at the bottom down there. And there's a huge oak tree, Mom. She says, yeah, I remember it. It's the one your dad, you guys hung that swing on and you played when you were a little kid. He says, yeah, that's it. Well, remember how the train tracks go right by that tree. What I want you to do, Mom, train's about to leave. If, if, if I see that you tie a white flag at the top of the tree or at the branch uh, by the swing, then I'll know that dad's forgiven me and we're all good and I can come home. And she says, yeah, uh, okay. And he hangs up the phone and he gets on the train and he starts heading down the train. As soon as he gets into the train, the train car is filled with a bunch of people, passengers. And there's this one older gentleman and he's the only one that's got an open seat. The young boy sits down right beside him and the boy starts to fall apart. He's not a very open person, but in this scene, in this, opera, in this time, he emotionally comes unraveled. And the older gentleman puts his hand on his shoulder and says, what's wrong, young man? And the boy says, well, I had a big blow up with my dad and I've been on the run for a few months now. And I'm hoping to get, go home. Well, how, how do you know if you're going to go home? Well, if he forgives me, well, how, how are you going to know if he forgives you? Well, this train goes right beside the bottom of my property. And if there's a flag tied to this tree, this big oak tree, then I know dad's forgiven me. And at the next stop, I'll get off and I'll go home. And he said, can I pray for you? So he prays for the young boy. And people that were playing cards and hanging out in the train car overheard this conversation and everybody kind of stopped playing cards. And the older gentleman prays for him, Lord, for help restore this home, end the war, bring peace upon this land, restore this father, restore this son. And so the train's traveling along and he says, oh, there, there, there's the bend. And around the bend, you'll see the big oak tree. And he couldn't look. And so he buries his head down in between his legs and he's sitting there. And the older gentleman just puts his hand on his shoulder and says, it's okay, young man. And everybody's looking and he's thinking just maybe that flag is there. And he's hoping in his mind that the train car will erupt in an applause. And instead of hearing applause, because they were thinking maybe the white flag would be there, instead... It's deathly silent, and then there's this huge gasp. <gasps> and the father, the older man says, young man, look up, look up. And he says, I can't look up. I'm, a, I'm ashamed. I'm, a, I'm terrified. And he goes, no, you've got to look up. This is your future. This is the next step that you need to take. Look up. And he looked up, and he did not see one white flag on one tree. But he saw a hundred flags on a hundred trees lining the railroad. And the father says to that, uh, the, the, the old man says to the son, son, your dad must have forgiven you. And there right along the train tracks, his dad and mom waving. And the message was loud and clear. You're forgiven. All is well. The reality of the storyline is for you is that you have a heavenly father that forgives you. You have a great king in heaven who loves you tremendously. And he didn't hang a, a flag on a tree. He hung his son on a tree 
to forgive you of your sins and he made peace with you. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray right now that there might be peace in this land. God, I pray that we would lay our weapons down. I thank you, God, for the great promise in the cross that there is hope, there is forgiveness, there is peace through the Son of Jesus Christ crucified for our sins. Thank you, God, that you are loving. Thank you, God, that you create peace. And God, for everybody that's here today that's in conflict, God, I pray that they would take responsibility as Romans says in your word. As far as it depends on us, God, let us be at peace with all people. So God, right now, might we surrender? Might we surrender in our own hearts and say, Lord, I was wrong. Lord, forgive me. And God, out of that, might we surrender more to you and see your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, everybody said. Thank you for listening. To become a supporter of North Valley Community Church, give online today at northvalleychurch.org.